Welcome to HackerPod. I'm April Lin. And I'm Josh. And this is the journey of two young indie hackers. We'll recount the good, the bad, and the ugly of building profitable online businesses. You'll hear about our successes, and more importantly, you'll hear about our mistakes so that you don't make them. Hello, today we have the great honor of being joined by a guest, our very first guest of HackerPod actually, Will Godo, to teach us about fundraising. Hey Will, how are you doing today? Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's a pleasure to have, uh, it's a pleasure to be here actually. Um, and thank you for inviting me to talk on your podcast. It's, it's quite an honor as well. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, it's interesting because we found you. I think I, I tweeted about our episode two and then you responded, you said, just listen to this. Nice work overall. I'd be happy to contribute some fundraising knowledge. I previously raised $3.6 million over two rounds for my last startup from, from some of the top VCs, pitched over a hundred probably. And I saw that response and then I DM Josh immediately. I'm like, hey, how do you feel about having guests on our podcast? <laughs> uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. We're, we're glad to have you. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, there's actually a typo on that tweet. It's actually 3.1 million, but like, <laughs> it's very similar still. Well, that, that's fine. I told April Lynn it's more money than I've ever had. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to complain about that decimal. Yeah, the, uh, all the blood, sweat, and tears is still there. So uh, I can right. that information. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, I mean, Josh and I both have a lot to learn. Um, in terms of our background with like how much we know about fundraising, I know some bare basics. I know I listened to a podcast a couple of weeks ago that went over some of the fundraising uh, process. So I know some of it through that, some of it just through talking with um, the CEO of the startup that I used to work for um, and learning about how he raised money. But besides that, I know close to nothing. Josh, like what's, what's your base knowledge? <laughs> I know you got to make a pitch and I know they got to like you. <laughs> that is the extent of it. So got a long way to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So um, it's, it's going to be great because we're coming from like a pretty low knowledge base. And I feel like a lot of our listeners um, have, have similar low knowledge bases. So hopefully we can learn together um, through this episode. But I guess first, can you tell us a little bit about like who you are, what you do, how you got here, um, and your startup? Yeah, most definitely. So again, my name is Will Goto. Um, I have a background actually in, uh, I went to school for material science, and then I actually made a career switch into uh, tech and programming. So I learned how to code myself and made a career switch, basically doing freelance work. And then eventually I found some contract work and ended up working as a front-end engineer for a few companies in Philadelphia. And then it wasn't until around 2012 is when I made the switch to California and worked for a company called One King's Lane. They did like, is like at the time, flash sales were very popular. And so they did flash sales for high-end home furnishings. And um, I think the timing was very lucky. I was actually very lucky to make this career switch during this 2012 era, era because that's when kind of tech just blew up. And so there were a lot of high growth uh, companies that raised, you know, millions of dollars and they needed to hire tons of developers. And at that time, developers were 
you know, even in more demand and short supply than they are now. So I was able to get my foot in the door, even as someone who just only had freelance and contract work as part of their resume. So I got in there full time, got into this nice tech company, and then, you know, made my progress from there. I ended up joining a company called Peer that was founded by the former CEO of Salesforce. And from that company, it was like a 12 person company. We ended up getting acquired by Twitter. And then from there, I started my own startup. And this is the one that we'll probably talk a lot about. This was called Humble.Dot. We raised around 3.1 million over two rounds. And we started, it was actually a coworker that I met from Peer um, that we started this company with. And this was around 2017. We started this company, ran it for about three years. We couldn't find product market fit, even after two, you know, after raising $3.1 million, we shut the company down. And then last year around September, we started Rise, which is the new company I'm working on with no funding, at least not now or anytime soon. And we've been working on that since. Okay, so it's interesting because you had, you know, that uh, first startup in which you did raise money, right? And then the, the second one, Rise, right now, in which you don't really have a plan to raise funding, at least for, you know, the near future. And I guess Josh and I can give the background of, um, you know, where we are at. I'm starting Tenderfoot, which is a, a startup to connect students with internships at startups. And the original idea was just you know, have it be a side project. And due to a lot of traction and interest, it's kind of grown to, hey, maybe this could be more than a side project, but still probably at the stage where, you know, optimally we would want to bootstrap. Um, because I feel like at least coming from what I know right now, it would yield a little bit more flexibility to our schedule and our goals. And we we'd more have to be answering to ourselves and our customers, but not necessarily to an investor. Um, however, there's you know the idea, hey, we do wanna jump on this full time. If we get funding, it'd be a whole lot easier to, walk in, to work on this full time because we have money to sustain ourselves. And then Josh, you wanna talk about where you're at? Uh, yeah, pretty similar. I was building WeWatch, a mobile app for people to find what films to watch together and start out as a way for me to learn how to make a mobile app and for me and my friends to use it. Um, but people are really liking it. I get tons of emails every day, tons of reviews. Um, and it's at a point where I'm like, whoa, this could be something. And I wanna start looking into all the other options that I have available to me. Yeah, but I'm also in the phase where I, okay, what I desire most is freedom. Um, like. Don't want to answer to anyone, just want to like wake up and work on it when I want to. Um, and I feel my main fear of getting an investor is that I'll just be back at a point where I have to answer to my bosses, which I'm already doing. Um, so that's really the thing that pushes me back the most. But honestly, I don't even know if it's actually like that. Uh, I don't know. That pro that's probably based on the investors that you get. Um, so yeah, I don't want to, you know, rule it out before I actually know what it's like. Yeah, for sure. Um, when you get to that point of asking yourself, you know, if, if, if VC is right for you, there's certainly a lot of things you want to consider. I think one of the largest ones is definitely your goals in your lifestyle. That's definitely mm -hmm. one, like you said, you want to just wake up whenever you want. You kind of want, don't really want to answer to anyone. 
and having that sort of flexibility. I think if you are running a VC company and you do become really successful, you'll lose that over time. But initially, mm-hmm. it, it's, it can still be that way, actually. So if you can do a small pre-seed round of like half a million, and what happens is when you raise off of uh, something called a safe, which is like the Y Combinator, like um, convertible note, we can get into that later. But basically what happens is like, you don't actually sell any of your company quite yet. Basically it's an agreement saying mm-hmm. that you will in the future, but you still get the money up front. And what happens is that you don't have anyone on your board. So essentially you don't have to answer to anyone. Basically the only thing that's keeping you accountable is the fact that the person gave you money and they expect you at some point in the future to raise more money or to sell the company or whatnot, but they don't have any sort of say in how you run the company. They don't have a board seat. You're still in charge. You can run the company in ever, whichever way you want. So like my co-founder, when we raised our pre-seed, we, we would go like rock climbing at like 10, at like 10 AM, like during the weekday. And then we'd oh. like work in <laughs> the apartment in the afternoons, you know, in the evenings. And that's like our, was like our work week it was like really really nice but we'd still raise money well i rock climb as much as i can and i would love to wake up and do the 10 a.m yeah. so yeah. i love that yeah um and i think like the thing is what's interesting is that i think like when you start getting into like a bigger company right and you start raising you're the founder right you 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 set the rules right so like mm. you could set a culture in your company uh, that, that prioritizes these values of flexibility and lifestyle. You know, you don't have to run a company the way everyone else runs a company. And I think that's something that a lot of people just assume you have to do once you've raised money. Right. And I don't think that's actually the way, um, I don't think that's actually necessary. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you talk about how at, at the pre-seed point, you know, you can still have that freedom because there's no, um, you know, strict obligations, I guess, that you have to meet at that point. But I guess, and this kind of goes into how VC funding actually works, right? But what's that turning point of, okay, I'm at the point now where I can no longer go rock climbing at 10 a.m. with my co-founder because, you know, other things are happening and I have other responsibilities. Yeah, I think that turning point, I think one, the turning point doesn't necessarily have to happen. Mm -hmm. I think it makes it definitely harder for you to collaborate with people if you are on complete flexible schedules. I think it's a little bit more difficult if mm-hmm. you don't know when your, your partner is going to go rock climb or when, you know, your, your first hire is going to go, you know, to the park. Right. And everything's very, very like loose and asynchronous. It becomes very, very difficult to get uh, things done. Right. And some, some people would actually argue against that. I think a lot of people who are in the very like remote workspace, can say that you can still be very very productive even if you have this complete asynchronous communication style but i think when you're starting a startup it's i think you have to be have at least some overlap in hours where you can communicate synchronously and get a lot of information exchange right away so mm-hmm. i think what happens is by by a nature of having to have that overlap people just optimize on like the nine to five because it's just easier for them to set that. And they don't have to intentionally set some type of like communication style that's asynchronous or use some tool that's different from everyone else, right? They could all just hop on Slack. They could all just use email. Um, Everything's just kind of set up for that world. And I think that's why everyone sort of just defaults to that world. But 
when you do have, for instance, like a team, right? We have like a team of eight. You have to have one-on-ones. You have to have meetings where you communicate what you're doing for the week to everyone. Everyone has to be aligned. And again, like those things are harder to do if everyone just has a, a very flexible schedule. But I mean, there is, there are ways that people can do this. It's just, it just becomes more difficult as your team grows. Yeah, that makes sense. So did, so my, my question for you is when did that point transition? What is, what did your day start to look like towards the end of your time at your last startup? Yeah, for us, it was right around our first and second hires. Basically, Mm -hmm. my co-founder and I were both product people. We love just flexibility and being able to just like bounce ideas off of each other and just, you know, be heads down whenever we want to. Our first hire was a marketing executive. And she came from a, a background of, you know, having strict hours in the office and stuff. And for us to basically kind of meld our working schedules together, it made more sense for us to be in the office around the same time, be able to just be available for us at any point in time, because she had a lot to catch up on, right? My co-founder at that point, we've been working on this together for almost a year and we can basically like, like communicate to like telepathically, right? Like I could say an idea and he could just finish it. And our, our first hire was like, whenever I'd say an idea, we'd have to like, you know, very like explain a lot of stuff with a lot of context. And that takes a lot of time especially in the beginning and eventually they'll get ramped up. But when that happened, I think when she was ramped up and we got to that point, we hired a, some, we hired like, a, some, like another employee and then it basically started over. So we were just like, you know, it's just easier if everyone's in the office, everyone's together around the same hours. Um, but we weren't very strict on like the hours that you had to be in the office. It was like, you could work from home, you know, obviously whenever you wanted to, but you know, we just prefer you to be in person in the office during like a window of time. Gotcha. Rewinding a little bit, when you went to Humble Dot, did you already know you and your co-founder at that point, we want to raise money or, you know, how did you come into that a decision to raise? Yeah. So we definitely were already committed to going this VC route. We were like, let's raise money. Um, let's get, let's get you know, a salary for ourselves to work on this, on this project. That'd be really, really nice. Um, we'll learn a lot. And if it doesn't succeed, that's fine. We'll like do something else afterwards. I think for us, we really wanted to just experience the journey and kind of gain all the upsides that are like not relevant to the success of a company. So a lot of those things were like, you're building your your network, right? You learned crazy fast. Like my co-founder and I, we just love learning. And that was something that was really valuable to us. So we felt like doing the VC route was something that was going to optimize our learning. Right. So we went in there knowing that like, it's going to be a challenge, right. It's not going to be the sort of lifestyle that we really want, but we were kind of like, you know, we're still young. Let's just try this out. If it doesn't work, we will do something else with our preferred lifestyle or preferred, preferred kind of work style. But um, yeah, looking back, like definitely worth it. You know, we, again, like the, the connections we made, things we've learned are incredibly 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 valuable so it's been really awesome yeah and where did when you went to Humboldt and I had experience at other big companies um did you already know what the process would look like or was that something that you also had to learn as soon as you started Humboldt yeah we didn't know anything about raising (laughs) 
like we would have meetings with people and we like Google terms, like acronyms that they would say during the <laughs> What was that like? What was that one thing that they said? And it, it was just like, yeah, we were just flying by the seat of our pants. And uh, it was, it was like crazy fun, but also like nerve wracking and like anxiety inducing at the same time. But yeah, again, like, like I said earlier, totally worth it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so just to confirm, you're not planning to race for Rise, right? Uh, not anytime in the near future. Um, the thing is, like, we don't actually know. Like, we went into hmm. we went to Rise with no plans because we just wanted to build a really good product for a niche. But if it turns out that everyone wants to use this, like, we might consider it. But again, like. I'd say maybe there's an eighty percent chance that we're not going to raise. Maybe ninety, ninety-five. <laughs> like, I've been really enjoying this like super flexible life. You know, like waking up when I, like I kind of value that that like very flexible life. Work when I want to, and I think when you step in the VC world, you kind of like have more of an expectation to like really take your company to the next level, and uh, we're just not ready for that. Yeah, fair enough. Then, on that note. Can you tell us some of the other downsides of VC funding that people might not know about or if that aren't immediately obvious? Yeah. Um, well, the first one is fundraising is brutal. It's like, <laughs> I think you mentioned this earlier, April, in, your last, in the last episode, it's, it's like a full-time job and it's incredibly stressful. Like you have people that you've employed, right? And you they're depending on you to raise money for like the company to exist right and there's all sorts of other pressures you know to to raise successfully you need to have a good product right if you're churning users it's like it's just like a very high pressure situation because you have a limited amount of time because you're burning a lot of money right and you only have a certain amount of runway so like you have to like hit these goals in in a minimum amount of time and it's like it's really stressful right um, I think it's, it's really stressful as like a first time founder, but then as like, you get more experience, you kind of get like numb to everything. You're like, yeah, everything will work out. It's fine. But <laughs> that, that first experience is like really, really stressful for first time founders. And I think that's like a huge downside. Like I can't even remember like how many hours of sleep I've lost over just like, you know, like meetings that we've had or interactions that I've had with investors that like I thought went well, or maybe didn't go well, or maybe I messed something up, you know, or said something stupid. Um, I think that's just like sort of a, just a psychological thing, but I think the other downsides include like, if, if you, um, if you kind of value this like autonomy, right. Around doing whatever you want to do, like that eventually kind of goes away. Um, because you do have like this vision that you pitch to your investors, right. You're like, we're going to change like the way people communicate right? Online, right? And that's what sold them, right? That's the reason why they're investing in you. They're like, okay, we put in a million dollars because you're going to build the next Slack, right? Or like be the next, you know, like Zoom, right? And you can't just be like, oh, you know, we're going to go a different direction or like not even, I mean, you can't even operate with like a way where you, you could change that like every day, right? As like, if you're bootstrapped, you can just like make strategic decisions like, you know, every other day, if you wanted to, every other hour, but with like VC, you have to like communicate this stuff to your board. You have to like any big decision you make, you have to like communicate it and have them. You don't necessarily have to have them on board, 
you just have to communicate it to make sure that they know what's happening. But if you do have someone on your board, you have to kind of get everyone aligned in terms of like, you know, making a huge strategic change like that. Um, so it's like a lot more, uh, I guess, bureaucracy a lot of ways, but it's not in the way where it's like, it feels like it's bogging you down. It's just that you have to do a lot more communication and a lot more like, um, like strategic thinking and planning ahead of time. Whereas like, if you're just a bootstrap company, you can just kind of like take things as you, as you want them to come. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think those are probably the two, two big things. And then the other is like, if you're, if you're not doing well, um, it, it just kind of sucks, right? <laughs> like you're, you're not doing well. You got to communicate, you got to report your numbers to like your, your investors, right? Like how much revenue you're making, what your growth looks like. And it's, it's tough, but at the same time, like they're there to help you. They're there to help your company succeed, but it still feels bad. You know, <laughs> like you're, of course, you're under, yeah. like leaving the <laughs> money and you're, and you're just like, ah, like I can't get the numbers that I want. Right. Um, yeah. I think like for, for the most part, I think the downsides just come mostly down to like more psychological stuff than like mm. really like the sort of control of your company or like that kind of thing. Right. Um, like I said earlier, like when you do hire people, right. Like you need to, you need to have a, like a plan in place to be able to communicate really well. But I mean, if any company grows, if your bootstrap company grows, right. You need to have that anyway. Right. So it's, it's not in my eyes, that thing is not really much of a differentiator in, in raising VC versus staying bootstrapped. Cause if you're, mm -hmm. if you're going to grow your company, you gotta, you know, you still gotta communicate really well with your employees, your strategy and stuff like that. You still got a plan. Um, but VC, it's like that clamp. Like, it's like, you got to get these numbers by like this amount of time because you have this much money left and you're expected to spend more to grow more, right? You can't just take this money and coast for the next 20 years, right? And eventually try to get to a series A goal in 20 years, right? They, they kind of want it in like a year and a half, right? Um, the, whole, the whole model of VC is like spend a lot of money, grow real fast, and then, you know, become profitable once you become really, really big. Um, bootstrapped, it's like, you know, you just want to be profitable, be sustainable long-term. Mm -hmm. Wow. So let's start to get into the, the nitty gritty parts of this process. You and your co-founder, you're starting this company, HumbleDot, you know, you want to get funding. What, what, what's next? Who, who do you talk to? How does this process, did you start with, with pre-seed funding or, you know, what happened? Wait, wait, guys, I have a confession. Pre-seed, seed. I don't know what those terms mean. <laughs> I need you guys to explain yeah. them to me. <laughs> the the investment world has these terms like pre-seed, seed, series A, B, and C, all the way up to, you know, F, G, H, I, right? And those are just simple, like, just simple, like, labels they slap on to kind of help them determine, like, around how much they've raised and, like, what stage the company's in. So... It's, it's weird because they, they've been moving around these benchmarks. Like apparently 10 years ago, a seed round was around like 500K-ish, right? And nowadays a pre-seed is that much. And now pre-seed is starting to climb up to like 1 million. And now a seed is like anywhere between three to like 5 million and a series A is like, you know, 10 million, 15 million. And I think what it really means though is like pre-seed and seed are kind of like pre-product market fit 
where you have like, you're still trying to figure out the product, still trying to figure out your market. And I think series A nowadays is like, you found product market fit, now you need to grow. And I think those were are the sort of like, the, the labels are sort of being used for, it's like both the number and the size of round plus the stage of company that you're in. But again, gotcha. they've been around. So like, so like in 10 years, like there might be like compost round, right? Or like it's <laughs> A and pre is like, you know, 3 million and then seed is like 10 million. So like, who knows? For sure. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. No worries. Um, but to Aprilin's original question, you sort of need like some type of like validation, whether it's someone who vouches for you or uh, a previous project that you worked on or something that kind of ties you into being a good bet for whatever startup that you're working on. And obviously if you have all like a lot of these things together, it makes a compelling story. So for us in particular, it was the fact that we worked on this previous project called Peer, which was again, started by the former CEO of Salesforce. We were very early employees. So that stuck out to a lot of investors. They were like, okay, you were early employees at this one startup. And what we were doing for HumbleDot was kind of tangentially related to what we did there. And so we would often tell in our, in our very first conversations with investors, like we had this UI that kind of worked and had really high engagement. We plan on using that for this other idea that we plan on doing and continuing this sort of like uh, knowledge transfer from one startup that got acquired to like this one that we wanted to build. And then we obviously had um, conversations with people who were um, more, I guess, um, prominent in tech that could potentially be our advisor. And we would get them to be you know, committed potentially as an advisor or someone we just have conversations with about what we're building. And those are the kind of people too that you kind of want on your side as, as like, yeah, if you raise money, I'd love to be an investor or like, you know, I'd love to, you know, have advisor shares. And so when you bring these things up to an investor, like you can tell this compelling story that like what you're going to build with your experience and the people that you've met in your network, or you're going to be a pretty good bet to make this early on. Um, it's really important to have that sort of story in the beginning because when you raise on pre-seed, it's, it's solely based off of like the founder's credentials, like their experience, their story, like, cause you haven't really built much yet, right? You only, you, you don't really have like a, we didn't even have like a working, we had like a working product, but it was very, very, very bare bones. So they don't really have much to evaluate you on in terms of product metrics and sales and marketing and whatnot. So they basically, you know, take a bunch of heuristics around what you've done in the past, what the knowledge you have with people around you and say, okay, this is probably a good bet. And I mean, I'm curious even, even earlier than that, right? Because you, you talk about, oh, in our conversations with investors, and at least for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners think, how do you even, you know, how, how do you even get to the point where you can speak to investors? Right? I've heard things like you need to have warm intros, right? Or are you, you know, is this individual angel investors or did you apply to some, you know, some, some seed funds? Like I know there's Tiny Seed and Hustle VC and some other ones where you apply to it or how did you even get your foot in the door and start being able to be in front of investors? Yeah, so a lot of these like pre-seed like programs didn't even exist back then, like it was like four years ago. So we didn't even have the option to do them, but we did apply to YC and we got rejected. And that was just like, 
one of the most uh, it was like one of the most awful experiences that we had. It was like a five minute pitch, and it was just like they didn't listen to us. But the way we got these initial conversations with some investors were uh, one. Some of them were, were warm intros, so we would know someone who would know someone who'd be like, "I invested in this person's fund. You should talk to them." Or um, like from our previous company, Peer, one of them, one of the C C O O was the. Um, yeah, the COO was the general counsel of Salesforce. And so he typically angel invests. So we just asked him like, hey, can we just run this idea by you? You know, can you get some feedback? And eventually like, if you approach them with just like wanting to know feedback around like what you're thinking about, they'll typically, you know, bounce ideas off of you. If they really like your idea, they'll be like, hey, this sounds interesting. I might, you know, I'll be interested in backing you or introduce you to more people, right? So like, I think the, the sort of advisor kind of route really helps you kind of get the foot in the door to get these sort of more warm intros. And those are usually the best you want to get for potentially raising the pre-seed. Um, there's also, I think, I think what's nice about COVID is that it's kind of changed sort of warm intro requirement, basically. Like, I think I've seen a lot of, uh, I don't know how true this is, but I've seen a lot of investors now saying that, like from tweets and stuff that they, do a lot more email, like cold email intros, and they read through them a lot more, and they actually take them more because they they can do that and take these meetings from people all across the U.S. Because you know you don't, it's the same now, right? Every meeting's through Zoom, so I think that's one really nice thing that's been happening for the past year. But before that, it was like you you had to be in San Francisco, like you had to meet in person, and I think that's it's much better the way it is now. I think for most people. Okay, with with that being said, then, because I don't really have a sense of what it was like before COVID, you kind of gave an overview. But if April Lynn and I were to start, I feel like I personally see a lot of people on Twitter who are like, I'm an angel investor, DMs are open. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't know, is it is that as true as it seems? Do, do you look do you think it literally is that we can just DM people and try and ask them for feedback and pitch our ideas in over social media? Yeah, I think you'd be surprised at like the response rate. I think it depends how you approach it. If you're just kind of sending them your pitch and it's a very simple three sentence paragraph and it's the same for every person, you're likely not to get a response, right? But if it's more customized and it's more of like a personal outreach, I think it's a little bit different. I think, um, you could also leverage, like you had, you said you had some investors reach out to you. I think for every person that you have a conversation with, you should also ask them, like, who do you think in your network would be someone interesting to talk to you or talk to, and they can introduce you to people as well. So like for every person that you meet, you can kind of just expand the type of number of people that you can kind of connect with. And I think that's like a really good strategy, but I think, I think reaching out cold, it's, it's a, it's a hard game. But I think it's if your messaging is good and if you if you have personalized like messages, I think it's it's just it's doable. Like I think there are very few emails that I don't read that are in my inbox. And I think I like read almost every single one. And then if I just if I don't want to respond to it, I won't. But if it's it's I still read them. You know, I still read the subject lines of every email. And I think that's the same for for most VCs. What I'm curious about, and you mentioned advisors. So in my past startup, so before Tenderfoot, I started the senior care startup with another co-founder who knew much more about fundraising. 
And at that point we were looking for advisors, but his mentality was that in order for an advisor to come on board, they have to invest. And so they're actually investing um, in our company and the perk of being an advisor to us is that they get better terms. And then, but then there's, there's the other side of it where you know, you pay someone in equity to be your advisor, right? Um, and without them investing, or maybe have an informal advisor. And I'm wondering, you know, what you think about advisors and what those terms should be. Yeah, I think, I think the person that you, that you were working with earlier um, is, is right in that it's better to have someone invest in you than just be an advisor. I think that's because they have more skin in the game. But the exchange is still very similar. So when they invest in you, they, they purchase shares from your company. If, if they're an advisor, you essentially just give them shares for um, vested over a period of time. So essentially, they're still vested in your company. They just haven't paid for those shares, right? So oftentimes, like an angel investor will typically do like a 25K check. And then they'll get whatever percentage of equity that is um, for for whatever round that you're in. But for advisor shares, you give a much smaller percentage of equity as just an exchange for their time. You know, and it could be an agreement where you meet once a week or you know once every two weeks, or depending on depending on how much they're involved in the company, you can have this sort of like uh, metered um, amount of equity that you'd give them. Usually, it's like somewhere around like half to I think a quarter percent of equity um, there's like there's some pretty good like benchmarks that people have out there in worksheets that people have in terms of like how involved is the uh, the advisor in your startup how often you meet with them how experienced they are how crucial they are to your co- operation and then like you can kind of like judge how much equity would make sense and I guess this is a good jump point into like how like valuation works especially when you're early it's like I have no idea how much Tenderfoot is worth. I'm sure Josh has no idea what, you know, we watch should be worth. When you're so early, you know, you haven't found product market fit. You barely have a working MVP. How, how the heck do you know what your company is supposed to be valued at? So this is another really strange thing that I've learned through like experience in this world. Like whenever you see news around like this, this company is like valued at like, you know, 10 million or like hundred million, you think there's like some really smart calculation or official calculation behind these numbers, you know, but they're not, they're just slapped on. Like people are like, okay, this is worth like investors are like, okay, we want to invest 2 million in your company. And we think you're worth like, let's say 15 million. Right. And it's like literally just, they just like slap this number on there that they feel is right. And maybe they might have like their own internal heuristics and other sort of metrics that they put on there, but there's not like, so like any sort of official like way to do this other than this one process called a 409A, which you, which companies do every year to do like an actual like market analysis from like consultants that actually value your company. But even those are like super, super subjective. Like we did one for HumbleDot and it was just like a survey that was like, like what are companies similar to yours? And it's like, Slack, Salesforce, and like something else, right? And it's like, those aren't similar at all, but like, those were the options that we put down. And then at the end of this whole survey of like, are you SaaS? Do you provide a free trial? Like, you know, how do you acquire customers? They're like, yeah, your, your company's around like 40 cents a share. And it's like, how do they come up with this number? 
and it's probably some like market analytics thing that they do. But um, yeah, the valuation is is very, very subjective and it has a lot to do with in, what investors think you are, your company is priced at. So like the way the whole VC like model works, right? Is that when you, uh, when you start your company and you have to do a Delaware C Corp because that's like what investors typically want because of tax implications and the way it's structured. But essentially what happens is when you start a company, uh, you, you start with like around 10 million shares. It's a pretty standard approach. And what you do is you, you split that shares, those shares between your, your founders. So for me and my co-founder, it was 50-50. So we, all, we both had 5 million shares starting out. Um, obviously, there's no valuation. Like, we don't have anything. But when you raise uh, a, um, a pre-seed through a safe, you essentially, um, there's certain terms on there that can help determine, like, approximate what your valuation is. So for us, we raised... Um, we got a term sheet from a four capital at the time. They were saying, Hey, we want to put in 400 K and a three and a half million cap. And the cap means it says like, basically what they do is they take, um, the amount they put in is, is essentially the valuation of our company is at 3.5 million. They can't go above that for the amount they put in. And so when we go raise our second round, it kind of protects them from being getting diluted too much whenever if we were raised like for example like from a valuation of 12 million right that would be like two percent for them right so like it helps them kind of protect the investors protect get or be protected from insane value insane valuations in the future when you do a safe right but like if we exclude the safe right and just talk about like what a financing round looks like so let's say my co-founder and i um we have both 5 million shares, right? And we go to an investor and say, hey, we want to raise a million dollars, right? And the investor is like, okay, we'll, we'll give you a million. And we think your company is like worth $9 million pre-money, pre-money valuation. So they'll give us the, the 1 million and they'll say that our, our company is worth a total of 10 million because it's the nine plus the 1 million they gave us. And that would give them 10% in the company because they have $1 million over the 10 million that's we're worth. And so we essentially sell that amount of shares in our company to them uh, for this new round. So I don't know what the math would be, but like we would issue new shares out of our 10 million so that our investors would have 10% of the shares. So I think that would be like a million shares, I think. But essentially what you do is like you have a number of shares in your company and after every time you raise, you you authorize new shares and you sell them to investors. But every time you do that, your valuation goes up. So you maintain the same number of shares over time, but you you authorize more and you sell them to investors and they buy a part of your company when they invest in you. Yeah, it's it's like kind of complicated. It took me like a really long time to like understand <laughs> it. And like what's worse is that the safe like expects you to know all this information. And it's like even more on top of that, right? So it's like, it's basically saying that like, uh, it's an agreement until you get to this financing is when all this other stuff happens. So you have to kind of like do your research and do your homework ahead of time to understand if you get a, if you get a safe, what does it mean, right? Like if you get a 5 million or 500K commitment for someone and it's like a 3 million cap, how that affects you later on. 
Um, luckily, there's a lot of tools out there that kind of help you understand what happens in these certain different scenarios. I think CapTable is one of them. If you Google like safe calculation tool, I'm sure there's a bunch that will actually help you understand the math behind this, um, behind this process. In terms of needing to do your research a lot, when I have mentioned thinking of VC, the VC route, one of the first answers that most people give me is to be careful because people, people are sharks and they're gonna take advantage of you. Um, and you know, clearly I do not know much, I'm still learning. And so I was wondering what your experience was with that and how you know that invest an investor is actually invested in you and not just trying to take advantage of the situation. Yeah, I think what a lot of people fail to understand is that VCs want your company to become like a $10 billion company, right? So you're, a lot, you're essentially, your incentives are aligned pretty well in the beginning. Like if you, if you can't make it past like the one to $10 million like stage, then it's basically considered a loss, right? So very early on, like your, your incentives are aligned. It wouldn't make sense for an investor to try to gain control of your company or even own too much of it, right? So like, let's say, let's say you, you own your company, right? You go through two, funds, two rounds of funding and the investor gives you really bad terms, right? Like they're gonna eventually like own after the round, let's say like 60% and you only own like 20 and your co-founder owns 20, right? And then maybe the round after that, it's like you own five, right? Like they're not incentivized to do that because if you get to the point where you're like, man, I only own 5% of this company. Like I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do anything for it. You know, like I'm, I'm like done, you know, uh, they don't want that situation to arise where the, the founders actually feel like they've been left out because they're the ones driving the company. They're like, they're hiring people. They're the vision of the company. They're like the one person who's going to get the company to the next stage. Right. So in the beginning, like that's definitely something that is like not an investor's mind to like try to take your company or like gain control, right? Um, but I mean, if you do have one on your board seat, which typically happens after a series A, they do have input, right? And it's your sort of responsibility to manage your expectations, your investors' expectations and what your company can deliver. And I think that's a very fair ask from an investor. And I think it's a very good skill for CEOs to learn, but, um, yeah, in, in the early stages, like you don't have to worry about that. And then in the later stages, like if if you're if it doesn't make sense for you to essentially like sell the company at a very very like terrible valuation, sometimes you might not even have any other options, you know. Um, and at that point, it's like you as a founder have to decide: do you sell? Do you sell it at a loss? Like, do you close the company down? Do you raise at bad terms? Um, it's, it's still predominantly your decision at that point. Of course you still have a board, but, um, again, like you have to manage the expectations, you have to communicate the strategy and all the things that you plan on doing at that point. Right. I think, I think the CEO is still like very much in charge. It's a matter of like the communication with your board is what's important in those later stages. On, on the conversation of equity. Josh asked me a question last podcast, which was um, at, an, at such an early stage, like WeWatches, what's, what's the typical amount of equity that, that you'd give away? And I told him, I have no idea. I don't even know if there is a typical equity, but do you know, you know, at, at each stage, like pre-seed, seed, series A, what, what percentage of equity should a founder be expecting to give away? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's no one really knows because like there's there's a bunch of random numbers everywhere, right? And it's highly variant on the founders. Like the founders of Instagram, for instance, right? They could probably only give away 2% of their equity for like whatever start they're working on next for like 2 million, right? Whereas like a first time founder might struggle to get even like 10% for 500K, right? But to give you some like benchmark numbers, right? So Y Combinator, right? They do, I think it's like 125K for 7% of your company. And that's actually kind of expensive. So when my com- my co-founder and I, we raised our pre-seed, we ended up raising uh, just over 525K. And that amounted to approximately, I believe, let me look at my notes here, approximately 10% of our company after our seed round. So yeah, so about half a million dollars around nine to 10%. And this was for first-time founders, right? And I think if you compare that to like Y Combinator, right? It's a much better deal, right? Half a million for 10% versus 125K for 7%, right? And again, it depends on, uh, you know, a wide variety of things, right? Like how far along of an MVP you have, right? Your your founder experience, right? If you've started companies before, um, but again, like my co-founder and I, we've never done that before. Um, and we were first time founders, we hadn't raised money before, and we ended up getting this deal that was, you know, half a million for about nine to 10%. That's pretty good. And then I guess to add on top of that, um, when we raised our series A, or sorry, when we raised our seed round, we raised around 2.6 million. And I think that was equivalent to 25% of the company. One question that I'm I'm dying to ask, because I hear people raising, you know, $526,000, $2.6 million. And I think, how do you, how do you know how much you want to raise? Right. You know, some some people I'm thinking, you know, investors would ask me, how much do you want to raise? And I think, I don't, I don't know. And they seem like very specific numbers. Are you raising like as much as you possibly can from people or how do you come up to that number? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. There's a lot of dynamics that go into this. So it's a combination of how much you need and how much you're, you're able to raise. And then also making sure you hit a sort of like perfect band for the stage of your company. So the, the first one is you, you kind of want to have an excuse of why you're raising, right? Like, you're not going to say, I want to raise like a million dollars and just pay yourself like 500K a year, right? And then just work for two years. So like you need to have a plan of like how you're going to spend this money, right? So like if you're, if you're a company that has like, that does a ton of like capital, like heavy stuff ahead of time and you need like these really big investments for like, I don't know, robots, for example, right? You're going to, your, your pre-seed is going to be much larger. You're going to have, your ask is going to be a lot, a lot larger, right? But if you're SaaS, you might need less, right? So depending on like your business needs, you can kind of like extrapolate how much you'll need for like three years, for example, right? Um, and I think three years is a good amount of time that you'd want to plan because I think you'd want to shoot to like eight, raise like the next round in about a year and a half to two years, but you want to have like that padding in case any emergencies happen. Um, so you can kind of like extend your runway. The other is um, it's tough to raise, right? Like it's, it's hard to get commitment from people 
And you might have a goal of half a million, but you might only be able to raise like 300K, right? And commitments and checks come in all different sizes. Uh, and, you know, you might get one check for 400K, but then you might get like three checks for 25K, right? In our case, we had someone who quote unquote led our pre-seed round and was like, hey, we're going to do a safe at a 3.5 million cap. And those are the terms that we're setting. And you can approach any angel investor, say those where the deals are, if you want to invest or not. So they said they put in 400K. And then any angel investor that we talked to after that was like, hey, here's what we're raising from for capital in these terms. And they would say, okay, yeah, I'll be willing to put in 25K, right? And at that point, for a pre-seed, if you're raising on safes, there's no like closing, there's no like time range. You could just basically keep raising safes at any point in time until you have your next financing round. So you don't have to have them like within a week or any sort of time frame of each other. You could just, if you need more money for your pre-seed round, you can just keep raising from people. There's no like, yeah, time restriction essentially. For us, it was like, we just wanted to get it out of the way. We're like, let's just spend a month and then raise, you know, um, what we can and then continue. And we're like, we don't want to raise more than like 600K, right? Because under the terms, it would dilute us too much as founders. And then essentially it would give us, give our investors more of a, more of a percentage, leave less for us. And that's where that last part comes in, right? So depending on what your terms are, if you raise a lot more, right, you might end up giving too much equity away than you want, right? But you can make that choice, right? If you have all these commitments from people and they're like, you know, you're the hottest thing on the market and people are like, you know, investors like run into your door willing to give you a safer on the spot. Um, what you can do is you can just say, no, I don't, I don't need your money and just take money from a few of them. But you can also raise your valuation too, right? So you could say, oh, okay, like we want to raise more money, but we have to bump up the cap to maybe 5 million instead of 3.5. And then that'll essentially keep the equity around the same amount, uh, but you get more money, right? So the terms are just better for you. But the downside of that is that if, you're, if your valuation is high in the beginning, you have to beat that valuation on your next round, right? So like, let's say in your first round, you're like valued at 10 million, right? You raise this crazy like pre-seed round. Everyone's like, loves you, right? You're like the hottest thing on the market. And then like, now you have like, uh, let's say you have like a million dollars in your pre-seed and you're worth 10 million. Whenever you go raise, raise your seed round or your series A, they're gonna be like, okay, you need to be worth like 50 million, right? Because you have to beat that 10 million valuation. If you don't get there with that million dollars, then uh, you're essentially, your, your company's not gonna be able to raise anymore, right? No investor's gonna wanna hop into that deal. So like, if you raise too much money ahead of time or early on, it becomes more difficult to like, like reach the expectations that those investors have in you. And so like, you kinda wanna avoid that sort of like too high of a valuation problem where like founders typically see it as like a really, really good thing, but it can also be like a really bad thing for you. One question I have, since you've, you've kept using the word safe, or I guess it's an acronym potentially, but I don't know what that is. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners also don't know what it is. So kind of, you know, bare bones format, what exactly is a safe? Yeah, so a safe stands for, I believe a simple agreement for future equity. And mm. essentially what that is, is it's this document that Y Combinator created to if essentially delay like all the legal obligations of selling shares to your, to your investors into the next round. So essentially like it allows investors to give you money and you don't actually have to give them shares until you raise the next round. 
And the reason why that is, is because typically so early on, and this is like kind of like the question that you were asking earlier is like so early, you don't really know what your valuation is, right? And so what the safe does is actually defer the valuation and the selling of shares until your seed round or your series A, whatever the next financing round is. So like, um, and there's, and, and like, I think Y Combinator has like a, a primer, they call it on this, on the safe that gives you a bunch of information of like what it does and like how to calculate, like how it turns into equity and like what percentage you're giving away. Um, I wouldn't go into the, the details of that. It's like really, it's like really involved, but basically, yeah, it, it makes it much easier for you to just raise your first round without having to pay for like legal, like legal advice and all this other stuff. You can just basically approach an investor and say, hey, like here's a safe, right? And then here's the cap and discount if there is any. And the, the investor probably knows what a safe is. They know what it means, right? And if it's a standard safe, meaning there's no edits to it, they, they can feel comfortable signing it and then just giving you money right away, right? So like you don't have to, like gather a bunch of investors together, you know, get all these verbal commitments and then like create a financing round and then have like authorized shares of your company and get legal to like make sure everything's done and neat and tidy. Like that can cost around like 20K to do, right? And it doesn't make sense to like spend 20K on legal like fees, right? To raise like half a million round. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's actually really, really nice. Um, I think why yeah, sound, is there a catch? It sounds like there's a catch. There has to be. <laughs> really interesting. Why Combinator has changed this actually, I think fairly recently, I think in the last year, but basically what's really interesting about the safe is that um, it doesn't have any sort of time limit on it, right? So what's, what's different from between a safe and a convertible note or convertible debt is what they call it, is that they'll give you money ahead of time and expect to have um, you know shares in your next round, but convertible debt will actually incur like interest over time, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you take ten years to raise the next round, there's going to be interest that build up, right? That you're going to have to owe the investor to, right? But a safe doesn't gotcha. have. There's no there's no debt, right? So what you could effectively do, and I think they they changed this in their in their rec most recent one to add some sort of like accountability. But basically you could, you could essentially raise on safes like as much as you want and never raise again and don't have to sell anything to your investors as long as you don't have a financing round, right? Or a financing event. So if you sell the company, they'll, they'll, get, they'll get part of that, right? But like you could essentially raise and never raise again and have a profitable company and then the investors won't get anything. But like, that's obviously not very like ethical, right? Like. I heard like a horror story of like where someone raised like half a million and they just like peaced out to Mexico and like they never heard from them again. <laughs> like it's like crazy, but um, yeah, it's it's a really yeah. interesting document. Um, but again, I think they Y Combinator has since changed this in the last year, and I think founders are still kind of using the older safe to raise. Um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Wow. So after you've raised pre-seed. Do you need to raise a seed before moving to like a Series A, or how how do you know like what is what does that look like? So you've raised a, you know tens of thousands of dollars, or maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars in your pre-seed. How is your seed round different? Right. So the pre-seed is raised typically on safes, so there wasn't any exchange of shares between the people invested in you and the money that you received. So the seed round is a 
is a actual financing round where your company actually authorizes new shares and gives them to the people who invested in your company. And you'll use something like Carta to like keep track of that. And there's all these legal documents that say like this person has purchased this amount of money uh, or this amount of shares worth this much in your company. So like the, the pre-seed is like these safes that are just like this one document. And then the seed round is typically like, yeah, this, this legal, like actual financing event that states that these people own this much amount in your company and that they, they are owed this much. And these are the terms and whatnot. And it's all laid out legally. Um, and your, your question around, like, if you like, why not raise a series A or like, you know, can you skip what whatnot? The labels are just there to help people understand like the stage of the company. So like you could potentially raise a pre-seed and then your next round could be um, like your pre-seed could be half a million. And then your next round you could raise, let's say you like blow up, right? You raise like 20 million on a hundred million dollar valuation, right? A lot of people probably wouldn't call that a seed round. Um, they would call that like an A because that's like they've, they've achieved product market fit and you know, they're, they're much further along than most companies. I think it's, it's kind of weird because like most people typically think these rounds in terms of like the size. So like seed is approximately like three to $5 million, right? Three to three to 10. And I think that's how you kind of gauge it. But like, yeah, if you, if you blow up and you can raise 10 million, uh, you can call it a series A, right? Or you call, you can call it a seed, right? Some companies will say, yeah, our seed round was 10 million. And then their series A would be more, but like, it's just kind of meaningless at that point, right? It's like more about the numbers than, than the label, right? But the, the labels are there just to kind of give people like a heuristic. It's like, oh, they raised their seed round like, you know, last year, right? And it kind of helps you understand like what approximately stage and size that was. Well, I feel like we've talked a bit about kind of pre-seed, seed, and that stage. And I guess if we continue along the journey of Will Godo and Humble Dot, right? You keep going along, you have some money in your pocket, you're working, you're trying to find product market fit. At what point, you know, how many, like, what's the timeline for when you started thinking, okay, we should raise again, right? Like we, we should raise our series A, right? Like when, what kind of things were you thinking about at that point? Yeah, so a lot of investors have very clear benchmarks for what a series A looks like. Um, it's not the case with C and pre-seed because those are very, very you know, like flexible and there's not a lot going on there. But with series A, I think the one benchmark that is kind of like the standard is a million in ARR. And I think that's pretty typical for any sort of B2B SaaS. So if you have a million in ARR, um, you're not guaranteed to raise a series A, but your chances are very, very good. Uh, but you have to, get, you have to hit that number. If you're, I think a consumer startup, I think one of the investors had mentioned, I think like 150 K free users. Um, if you're kind of like a free kind of tier or like a social app, for example, they'd want to see like 150 K like free and engaged users. And then there's obviously a bunch of like secondary metrics that you can determine of like how engaged these users are and you know how involved they are in your community and all that stuff. And that kind of comes into account whether or not they, they would uh, want to invest in you or not. And there's a bunch of like product, um, product management kind of like charts and stuff that you could look at. Like there's, they would want to see your retention, you know, like your, the acquisition of like how you're getting people, your month, month over month growth, um, churn, all sorts of stuff. There's, there's something called an L5 or an L7, which says like how many, 
of uh, how many days of the week, what percentage of users are active. So if, if you have 100%, everyone's using your app every day, right? Um, and those are like mm. really good indicators of, you know, how, how monetizable your app will be in the future, right? So like if everyone's using your app every day for like three hours, right? Like TikTok, right? Like the, the value of that's really high because you know, like when you put ads on that thing, like people are going to see them, you know, people are going to engage with them. So um, when it comes to these sort of consumer startups, you can use a lot of these uh, product metrics to kind of tell your story to get into that series A, even if you don't have any revenue. But again, like if you're doing B2B SaaS, like it's got to be a hundred or uh, sorry, a million in ARR. Nice. So we talked about your kind of seed journey. We talked about series A. Let's talk about when it all went downhill, because usually I think when we think about, you know, raising VC money, we're like, oh yeah, you are super successful and you keep raising some subsequent rounds. Maybe you have this huge exit or maybe you go public, right? And you IPO, this is all really good things like that can happen. But obviously there's the other side of it. And I think that there's a lot of fear around what happens when you aren't super successful and you have raised millions of dollars. Like, does everyone hate you and curse your name and you can never go back into the funding environment again because all investors, you know, your name is a curse word at that point, right? Like what, what happens? How do you communicate with your investors when things are not going so great? Yeah, this is, I love this question because no one ever talks about this because no one likes talking about their failures. But I think you, the perspective, you need to take like the perspective from investors, right? When they invest in you, they know that like 95% of startups fail, right? And that's like the economics of VC. It's like you make a hundred bets, right? And one of them ends up becoming a unicorn and pays off for, you know, your entire fund, right? And from that perspective, it's, it's like no big deal that your startup fails, especially if you done a lot to like, you know, try to make it succeed. Um, they're not going to look at you and be like, wow, this person's an idiot. Unless if you did something like that may lead them to think that you actually are one, right? Like if you spent like, like 90% of your money on Facebook ads thinking on like, on like, you know, something that doesn't convert, right. They're going to be like, wow, that's a waste of money. But I mean, that's what they're there for. They're there to like, you know, check in on you like every quarter or every month, wherever, how many, how often you meet with them. Um, and so like failure is, is really like, it's commonplace, right? Like, every, like most startups go through failure and most startups don't succeed, right? And this largely happens uh, right after the seed round because the series A is like the one benchmark that like you get product market fit, you have ARR, you're doing really well, right? And that's like, I think that's like the biggest cutoff. It's like most startups, you can have ideas, you can have a product, you have an MVP, you can have a small community, you can have paying customers. But if you don't have that, like a, you don't have that on a large scale, then you're not going to be able to make this into the billion dollar unicorn that, you know, investors are looking for. And so that stage is really, really difficult. And at that point, right, most people raise, yeah, like us, we raised up to three, $3.1 million and we couldn't, we weren't seeing the traction that we were, that we wanted. Right. So like for us um, in particular, when we raised our seed, our seed round, we raised 2.6. We're like, okay, here's our plan. Right. In the next two years, here's, here's going to be the growth trajectory that we want to hit. Right. And then here's how we're going to do it. Here's where we're going to spend our money. Right. And every month we kind of like reference this plan and how much we're spending and all that stuff. We kind of keep track. Right. And, you know, your trajectory looks like exponential, but
but your growth is very, very linear, right? And um, there's a certain point where you know things aren't working, right? And as you get closer to and closer to the end of your runway, you have to make larger bets and larger swings. And at that point, um, the investors kind of know that you're struggling, right? They know that what you're doing and all the things that you're trying are really good efforts, right? They're based off of, you know, metrics and analytics and the things that you've done, marketing guesses, whatnot, product changes. Um, you're making all these strategic decisions and you're making these big bets and they know this, right? They know that you're, you're trying really hard. And, you know, at the end of the day, it could be your initial go-to-market strategy, which is wrong, right? Or, you know, the, the product isn't good enough and your engineers like had like a lot of internal conflicts and it was too tough for you to, you know, hire new engineers and take care of the tech debt. Right. Or there's, there's could be a, a million reasons why. Right. But they, they know that these are the problems that can cause a, fa- a startup to, to fail. Right. You founders could even have like a disagreement and one could leave. Right. And then I could like pretty much kill the startup. So they're aware of these things and they'll do this diligence upfront to mitigate these risks, but, but they're there. Right. And most, most will fail, but at the end of the day, they're not going to fault you as a person for them. They're not going to, they're not going to say like, Oh, we're never going to invest in you again because you failed. Right. If your reason was because your go to market in your initial bet on the market was, was wrong. Right. That's just a, that's just a mistake. And if you come back to these investors, with an even better idea, they're probably more likely to invest in you because they know how you work, they know how you think, uh, and if you have a good track record of, you know, making really good strategic decisions, then there's no reason not to, right? It's better to invest in an experienced founder who's done this before, and understands how, you know, to correct their mistakes the next time. It's it's probably a better bet than someone who's never done it before, right? So the, the relationship that you have with these investors is, doesn't really go away once you've failed. And I think that's one of the really huge upsides of doing VC that most people don't see. Like you, you maintain these connections after you fail and they don't really fault you for them. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I love what you said about, you know, they're actually more likely to invest in you because you've learned from your mistakes and you're totally right that if you've gone through it and you failed, I need to remind myself that I learned a lot throughout that process and it's going to make the next one even better. So yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Like failure is, is really good, like for, for growth. Right. And I think like uh, a lot of people see failure as kind of like this thing that just ends you and you, you don't have any sort of history after that, you know? Nice. Thanks so much for this conversation. I'll ask you one last question before we wrap up, which is, you know, if you have, indie hackers or founders um, who are really early in their stages considering funding like like Josh and I, any, you know, key pieces of advice that you would give them um, when looking ahead at this potential journey? Yeah, I think one of the bis- biggest misleading things that, that people see or people do whenever they first start getting interest from investors is um, when they get like an email from someone, they're like, Oh, this guy, this person's interested in us, or like this this VC is interested in investing in us. In your head, you're like, it's probably like fifty to twenty five percent. They'll you know give us money, right? But it's not. It's like if you if you get emails from recruiters, right? They're like, you know, we talked to the CEO and they pointed your resume out specifically, and they want to, you know to talk to you. It's very very similar. 
they're trying to get you like on a call. Um, it's very much the same way in VC in that like from these recruitment emails, if you're like, yeah, I'm interested, you still have to go through the gauntlet of the interview process, right? It's, if you're like a software engineer, you have to like do these crazy technical interviews, you have to do a phone screen, like all these cultural interviews. And it's the same for everyone, right? Like they all have to go through the same process, but just because you got that recruitment email in the beginning, like doesn't make you any more special, right? And it's the same for these, for, for any VC that reaches out to you via email, it's the same process. And it's a very grueling process. Um, there's a lot of diligence. Uh, you have to pitch probably two to three times to different partners in the same firm. Uh, you're asked a lot of questions. They do diligence if you're lucky, and then you'll get a term sheet. And even if even if they you get to that point, it might not be enough money that you're willing to take to finish around, right? So like you could go through this whole process and maybe raise 100k when you need like 300, right? So. And my sort of advice is if you are interested in raising, you have to make a conscious decision to do so and then make it a process. Like in these three months, I'm going to try to raise money and do all this outreach and treat it like a sales process and then commit to it. And if I can't raise, that's fine. I'll, I'll do you know the bootstrapped way or like wait half a year to a year till my business is better and more attractive for, for VCs. Um, making that commitment up front makes it much more likely that you'll be able to successfully raise money. If you kind of just take this kind of like, maybe I'll do it, maybe I don't, I'll take some of these meetings, you won't actually get like a very good um, sort of momentum to close out the amount that you'll actually want. Thanks so much for that. Wow, I feel like there's still so much we could talk about, like accelerators and, and pitching, right? And all of these different nuances and part of this process. Um, but maybe we'd love to have you again sometime to go over know either you know what the pitch process looks like or you know tips for that sometime um but yeah thanks so much for joining us on HackerPod and being your very first guest where can listeners find you or learn more about your startup yeah so the best place to find me is on twitter uh so my handle is w-r-g-o-t-o and my startup is rise.io we're essentially a an intelligent time tracker that helps you to be more productive but Thank you for having me on this podcast and I'd love to, you know, hop on again and talk more about the the whole like investment sales pitch process. Like that's also a whole other world. <laughs> uh, really fascinating as well. So um, yeah, definitely up for it. You've just listened to HackerPod. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Joshua Fonseca. Or if you hated it, you can find April Lynn at April Lynn A. 